Chapter 8 Riding the Loser Cruiser All great changes are preceded by chaos. Deepak Chopra But I had had nothing before, so I wasn't exactly in unfamiliar territory. Look on the bright side, I told myself. At least you have a nice place to live. My first apartment in Vegas wasn't that great, but compared to the crap hole I'd lived in in Colorado, it was practically a resort. Not that I thought I would be able to keep it much longer since I barely had two dimes to rub together. You'll get by, I told myself. You always have. I didn't realize how limiting that mindset was, because that was exactly what the universe ended up giving me. Just enough to get by. Every. Single. Time. Suddenly, Mackenzie, Matt, and I all needed to find work in Vegas, stat. We also realized that we would need some kind of transportation to take us to those jobs, or even just to job interviews. So, broke-ass as we were, we got together and shelled out what must have been close to our last 500 bucks for a piece-of-shit Oldsmobuick. But realizing that with three of us, we would still need at least one other mode of transportation, and we certainly couldn't afford another car, we decided to use what little money we had left to buy an old moped too. It was Mackenzie who found the ad for it in the paper, and I went with her to pick it up. That whole experience was bizarre. A little old lady was selling the moped, and when Mackenzie and I got to her trailer, we were both struck with an eerie feeling that didn't sit right with us. For one thing, there was an odd smell emanating from that dark and gloomy trailer, like the faint odor of death. And both Mackenzie and I felt strongly that there was something like an oppressive presence or spirit in the air. We later admitted to each other that we had half expected the mother of Norman Bates to jump out at us or something, bloody knife in skeletal hand. The whole experience felt very haunting, and the memory of it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up today. Given that we both felt such foreboding, you'd think that Mackenzie and I would have said thanks but no thanks to buying the moped. But no, we went through with it. We were desperate. But a desperate attitude will not get you what you really want, just what you need to scrape by. That's what we did over the next few weeks. We scraped by. By day, we got around in our shitty car and haunted moped, and by night, we stayed home, ate Taco Bell, and got shit-faced on cheap-ass liquor. In a way, it was like an echo of the old days when I was living in my car my first year in Breckenridge. But while the apartment was a step up from the van, living there while being broke as fuck was way worse. At least back when I lived in the van, I had found the lifestyle acceptable. No rent, no landlord. I felt nothing but freedom. But a decade had passed since. I had had a glimpse of the other side and wanted to go back to the kind of freedom that financial security had given me. Things continued to go even further downhill when Mackenzie's moped was stolen from in front of our apartment. We actually suspected a neighbor but never got to prove it. Had we remembered how creepy the circumstances were when we bought the moped, we might have seen the theft as a good thing, but we were pretty devastated at the time. Not with just the moped, but with everything. I was so down, in fact, that I remember lying awake at night hearing military planes flying overhead and wishing more than once that one would just crash into our apartment and end it all. Finally, Mackenzie found a job at the Bellagio as a massage therapist, which required her to use the crapmobile. Meanwhile, I pounded the pavement and hit up every store in the area for any job opportunity I could find. But because I had owned my business for the last five years, all I kept hearing over and over again were two little words you're overqualified. With our funds dwindling, I found myself growing more and more desperate as life seemed to be nothing more than a struggle to survive. But just when I felt the closest to giving up I'd ever felt in my life, I took a job as a clerk at a gas station convenience store. It was literally the only job I could get, 
a far cry from my flashy days as a business owner and a man about town. Oh, and speaking of town, did I mention that my gas station job was all the way across it? I not only had to take the bus to work, I first had to skateboard to the bus stop since it was a long-ass distance from my apartment and then from the next bus stop to the gas station. At least I was able to put my old snowboarding muscles to good use. Every day, as I took that loser cruiser to my prestigious new job, I sat in awe at just how far I'd fallen. It was extremely humbling to go from where I once was, with dreams of rising even higher, to where I now found myself, at the very bottom of the social and economic totem pole. What I felt went far deeper than being humbled, in fact, it was more like humiliation. It was like no matter what I did, it would get taken away by someone, somewhere, somehow. I began to wonder what the point of it all was. I didn't understand then that success doesn't only have to come once and then that's it. That the road to success was actually a series of ups and downs. That it was all part of the process. So kids, listen up. When people tell you that the road to success only goes uphill, they're full of shit. I couldn't see it then, but even when I was riding the loser cruiser, I was still on the road to victory. Then I hit the jackpot. Well, kind of. That is, I got lucky whenever someone else hit the jackpot in the convenience store. See, there were slot machines at the gas station where I worked. In Las Vegas, slot machines are everywhere. And often, when someone won, they'd give me a nice tip from their winnings. Realizing the tips were where the money was, I began to cater to the regulars who I saw pumping their paychecks into the machines. On a good day, I could make $200 to $300 in tips. Things began looking up. The owner of the convenience store also owned the gaming bar next door, and I saw an opportunity. I took my tip money from the gas station and doubled down again, this time by attending bartending school. And I eventually talked the manager into letting me take the graveyard bartending position. I began bouncing around to several of the bars owned by the company, always taking the graveyard shift. You never really get used to graveyard hours though, so I was tired all night every night and restless those times I was supposed to sleep during the day. It was a bizarro world. Even though the graveyard shift sucked, it still made me more money than selling condoms and 40s at the gas station, and I didn't feel like such a loser anymore. I did, however, often end up spending a lot of my money and off time gambling at other bars, not on drinks, they were free. The only real downside, other than the weird hours, was dealing with drunk people all the time, but I had many years of experience in that department. Crossing the Threshold once we were steadily and gainfully employed, Mackenzie and I decided to buy a house, which, by the way, in 2003, they would let anyone with a pulse and a pen do. Just the idea of becoming homeowners was exciting to us. Neither of us had ever owned a house before. The process of looking for the right place was fun and nerve-wracking, especially since we had to take out a stated income loan. We really wanted to have a swimming pool and found the perfect little single-story pool home for 169k. It was 1,500 square feet and located in an older area of Vegas called Spring Valley. It wasn't a great house, but it suited us just fine. We were thrilled and nervous at the same time when our offer was finally accepted. After all we'd been through, to be first-time homeowners was a great feeling. I was quite proud of myself. Little did I know then that real estate would later become my calling, but first, it would bite me in the ass. Before that happened, though, homeownership inspired me to enter into another contract and I proposed to Mackenzie. It was a very Las Vegas proposal, yet understated in its way. We were outside the Bellagio Casino at their restaurant where you can watch their beautiful and famous fountain shows. I chose my moment, and with Elvis Presley's Viva Las Vegas playing in the background, I took the ring out of my pocket, got down on one knee, and said those four little words. 
She said yes as the jets of water alongside us shimmied in time to the music. After Mackenzie and I had been engaged for over a year and a half, our relationship fell on the rocks. But instead of taking inventory, I thought, I know, let's put a band-aid on that shit and get married anyway. That'll solve everything. So we threw a small afternoon wedding at Angel Park Golf Course. There were only about 50 people, mostly family and friends, in attendance. Sierra was my best man. We had a reception, and I danced with my mom to Leonard Skinner's Simple Man. And that's what I vowed to be. Shortly afterward, Mackenzie introduced me to a video called The Secret. It was all the rage at the time, and it heavily promoted the law of attraction, power of positive thinking, and manifest your own destiny schools of thought. I was fascinated by it. For one thing, it seemed to be more science-based than religion-based. For another, it looked to be just what the doctor ordered, like it could be the very thing that could make my marriage actually work. I was hopeful it would anyway, and I gave it a few tries. I remember specifically trying to manifest improvements in my relationship with Mackenzie. I would lie on the grass in the park and try to visualize us the way we were in the beginning. It didn't work. In fact, our relationship only got worse. Next, tired of chasing after nickels and dimes all my life, I tried manifesting having more money. What happened? I got fired. Needless to say, I decided that either I wasn't doing this manifesting thing right, or the secret was bullshit, and I gave up on the whole thing altogether. Since I'd never been fired before, the whole thing came as quite a shock. But bars in Vegas make their money from gamers, and when gaming numbers are down, the owners try to find bartenders who have a nice, big following of gamblers. Or better yet, blonde hair and a big rack. Unfortunately, I didn't quite meet those qualifications, and the new manager replaced all of us existing bartenders with ladies that did match the above criteria. Still, as I said, it came as a shock because I was a model employee and all the customers loved me. And yet, I could believe it because 1. The new manager was a giant asshole, and 2. I'd been getting a jealous vibe off of him ever since he'd first arrived and saw that I was a popular and established figure at the bar, which was what he wanted to be. Even though I knew being fired was really about him being a giant asswipe as opposed to me doing anything to deserve it, I began feeling like a loser again. It was a blow because it was the first time I'd ever been fired, and my ego took a hit as a result. Vegas is a cold, hard place, I remember thinking at the time. It actually took me several years of living in Vegas before I even liked it, to be honest. It was a huge culture shock to go from Breckenridge, where everyone said hi to each other on the street and everyone had a common interest, skiing or snowboarding. In Vegas, that common interest was money, and that makes for a very cutthroat mentality. I actually hated Vegas at first because of this, and that most certainly did not help with my mental mindset at the time. Ignoring the signs, again. I took another graveyard bartending job at one of the video poker bars we frequented closer to home. I knew the staff, and they were excited to have me on board since they knew I was a good time and stayed up till 8 a.m. on a regular basis. I had worked there for about two years on the night of July 4, 2005, when I was held up at fucking gunpoint. It was approaching 4 a.m., and I had about eight regulars left in the bar after a raucous evening of shots, jackpots, and extra-loud classic rock, much busier than a typical night at that ungodly hour. Folks must have been feeling extra-American, celebrating the birth of our country by drinking and gambling the night away. It was a lineup of the usual suspects for this particular establishment. Kelly, the blonde cocktail waitress who always tipped big when she won. Steve and Sheila, the on-again, off-again couple that occasionally got kicked out for arguing and who drank beyond normal human capacity. And of course, Frank, the bouncer from the strip club with his entourage of inexpensive women in tow. 
All the other employees and managers had called it a night and left yours truly to finish up the evening per usual. It was a particularly good night for me, as I'm quite sure I had cracked four digits in my tip bucket and players were still pumping C-notes into the machines like they were going out of circulation. Suddenly, out of the corner of my eye, I see two young punks, hoodies pulled over their heads, stroll through the wide-open front door, flashing firearms and demanding cash. I'm not gonna lie, it was pretty scary. Surreal, even. The music, the laughter, and time itself seemed to come to a screeching halt. Everyone forked over their wallets as I handed over the cash behind the bar, and sadly, my tip money. The appropriate response, I'm told, when there's a handgun pointed at your face. No time to be a hero. Fortunately, I was at least eight Jägermeisters deep, and I managed to keep my composure throughout the robbery. It was a traumatic experience, to say the least. Thankfully, no one was shot. When the cops showed up, all that remained were several sobbing women and a trail of loose bills heading out toward the parking lot. I couldn't sleep for several weeks, no exaggeration. I couldn't sleep for longer than an hour at a time without waking up in a cold sweat. As grateful as I was that no one died that night, I kept wondering, what if someone had pulled the trigger? What if that had been my last night on earth? Or what if they came back and decided next time I wouldn't be so lucky? I wouldn't have to worry about next time though because I ended up getting fired soon after the incident took place. The manager was pissed that the security cameras had not been running that night, but as I did not have access to the locked manager's office where the controls for the security cameras were, the cameras were not usually rolling during my shift unless he set them to do so. So basically, it was a bullshit excuse to fire me. He blamed the victim for the crime. Because of this, I, again, could have looked at my being fired as a favor from the universe since I was now suffering from PTSD. The nightmares were the worst. I kept dreaming up different versions of the robbery where Mackenzie and I, or members of our families, ended up getting shot. Also, I could no longer perform my job with any kind of peace of mind since I kept looking over my shoulder, expecting the robbers to come back and finish the job. But at the time, all I could think were things like, fired again, and for something that wasn't my fault, and now with the emotional baggage of trauma to boot? What's next, universe, you bitch? Had I paid attention to the signs, I might have understood that it was time to get out of bartending, but I only understood the message to be, get off the graveyard shift. So that's what I did, and I took yet another bartending job at a new sushi and gaming bar where I was subsequently fired for a third straight time. This time after gaming numbers failed to reach their projected totals. So deciding that job security was clearly the problem, I applied for a bartending position at the Bellagio Casino, where Mackenzie worked and the site of my musical marriage proposal. The Bellagio is a union casino, which means that you have to really fuck up bad to get fired from there, so I figured I was pretty safe. Unfortunately, because it's a union casino, you also don't get to start off as a bartender right away, or even as a barback. So down the ladder I slid, as I became Las Vegas's newest graveyard bar porter, aka night janitor. I was given the distinct honor of scrubbing bar mats, toilets, emptying trash, and cleaning floor drains each night and morning from 2am to 10am. It was brutal. This was extremely humiliating, as I recall being watched and snickered at by all the cute cocktail waitresses while I was on my knees holding a scrub brush with my arm down a nasty-ass black floor drain in the service well. It was the worst. But it was a turning point. Sure, it took me five years, three firings, an armed robbery, and my kneeling on the floor up to my elbow and crap for me to decide that I should be doing something else with my life, but everyone's got their limit, and I had just found mine. What about you? 
Sometimes, we have to hit an all-time low before we can fix our situations and build our lives back to where we want them to be. Perhaps you're in that situation now, and that's why you picked up this book. I again invite you to examine your past and think about what's brought you to this point in your life. This time, I invite you to write down your work history, specifically how long you've had each job, with what attitude or emotional state you began that job, and with what attitude or emotional state you ended it. Also write down whether you were fired or left on your own, and why. This is for your eyes only, so be as honest as possible. If you do this, you will find that an account of your professional history will help you to better see what you did right and where you went wrong. Again, all that self-judgment will only serve to paralyze you, and this book is all about moving beyond the fuck-ups of the past and moving into the future all the wiser for your experiences. Next, I advise you to go over the list and use it to recall those days and the times that the universe gave you signs it was time to move on, that you ignored. Again, this is not to feel bad. I don't when I look back, I laugh. Because now I've trained myself to see them, and when you go over your own similar experiences in the past, you'll be training yourself to better recognize them in the future too. Knowledge of past mistakes is still knowledge, and knowledge is power. But I must warn that even with knowledge, we can continue to screw up if we fail to be completely honest with ourselves. And that's the hardest part. Because when we lie to ourselves, it's often not even by conscious decision. And we end up making ourselves our own biggest obstacles to success. For instance, because I know myself and how I prefer and will always prefer to be in charge of my own destiny, I told myself that was exactly what I was doing when I worked at all those bars. This was not true, of course. But because my self-esteem was low at the time, I convinced myself that it was, and that I was happy and was getting to do my own thing. I see now that this lie was more out of self-protection than anything else. I'd pushed down my dark and dangerous feelings of defeat, numbed them with alcohol, and was able to convince myself that I enjoyed work because I like people and get along with everyone. I even drank with my regulars, and most of them were doing just what I was doing, pretending to be happy and in charge of their own lives, and we all dwelt peacefully in that state of denial together. I was able to keep this up for a long time, too, because working the late shift meant I could tend the bar without a boss breathing down my neck, and it made me feel like I was the one in charge. Pretending to be my own boss gave me an excuse to not move beyond my situation and into a better one. But I kept getting fired by people who actually were my bosses, a truth I didn't want to see for bullshit reasons. I kept getting knocked lower and lower until I had to be on my knees with a hand up a casino's ass before I could see the truth. I actually thought about moving back to Colorado to try to get back some of the swagger I had there because my tank was completely empty of that sort of thing here. But pride got in the way once again, and I didn't want to go back to Breck with my tail between my legs. I had to find something else. But what? I feel you should fail a lot. You get better from failing. An interview with Sierra Colt, renowned tattoo artist, entrepreneur. Before he became the in-demand artist he is today, Sierra Colt was a professional snowboarder who won almost every competition he entered. This got him noticed, and he was soon getting sponsorships by the truckload. But then he heard the sirens call to become a tattoo artist. Once he turned his attention to learning more about the art of tattooing, Sierra's snowboarding career suffered. First, he began to fall behind in his stats. Then he began to find it harder to keep up with the up-and-comers. Finally, he lost all his sponsorships. Before he knew it, Mr. Winningstreak had to familiarize himself with failure as he struggled to create a whole new career for himself. Why would you leave something you were so good at for something you had to learn to do well? What made you switch gears? Snowboarding is not something you can do professionally for a long period of time. 
Don't get me wrong, for a time, I loved it. But sometimes you feel like you've gone as far as you're going to go with something, and it's time to try something else. I've always been an artist, and I love tattoos. I also like to learn, and becoming a tattoo artist was sort of this dream I'd had in the back of my mind for a long time. Once I got started down that road, becoming a great tattoo artist became more exciting to me than being a great snowboarder. Actually, I wanted to be the best in the country. Plus, I'm not afraid to fail. I think that's true of most snowboarders. You crash and burn a lot as you try to get better and better at the sport, and I think it's a good way to be. People should be taught to not be afraid of failure. In fact, I feel like you should fail a lot. You get better from failing, absolutely. Your gamble paid off. You're a successful, in-demand, highly paid tattoo artist these days. Was it an easy transition from snowboarding to tattooing? There was a bit of a learning curve. If I'm going to be honest, some of my first tattoos were real pigs. When you first start learning, you're going to make some jagged lines, or you're going to make bad placement decisions in the design and stuff. But that stuff has to happen before you can get better. If you don't at least make that first line, then you can't make a second line, etc, etc. In fact, probably the biggest thing I can share with your readers is that in art, your first piece will definitely not be your best. You're not just born with it. Well, some people are, but I'm not one of them. I had to learn everything. Most people do. When I look back now, I'm like, wow, I really had to do that to be able to do what I'm doing now. I wasn't an overnight success, but most overnight successes have actually put in a lot of work behind the scenes, you know, grinding it out until four in the morning for three years straight to become that overnight success. So although some people might say I started doing well pretty quickly, the skill level I'm at now actually took 20 years to get to. But I've enjoyed the journey. I've never been the type to want to win something right away, like the lottery or something. It would be nice for sure, but I don't want to just come out of the gate winning. I would rather have the experience of failing. I spent so many years learning the ins and outs and talking to other artists about how to design stuff and sharing secrets and tips and tricks and building up my knowledge of tattooing and skin and art. Now I'm here because I've spent all these years cementing my bricks of knowledge and foundations and failures. I couldn't have gotten here without failing. You really wouldn't want to win the lottery? It's way better to earn a million dollars than to win it. If I gave you a million dollars, you might blow it on some privilege shit, but if you earn that million dollars, you're proud of it. You have a story. Like, why did you earn it? How did you earn it? Who was with you? Who helped you? Who did you bring up with you? And you have a foundation of, well, I figured out how to do that. I spent a lot of time putting in the hard work of figuring out how to do that. And I now know how I can do it again. If somebody gives you a million dollars and you spend it all, well, then you've got to find somebody else to give you another million dollars because you don't know how to do it yourself. So yeah, having the foundation you built yourself is way more satisfying, even if you fail a lot along the way. So what happens when you do fail? When all your plans and actions fall through and things just don't work out? That's life pretty much, isn't it? A lot of things that you hope for, try for, and think you can do don't fully work out. And this can be any area of your life, be it love, business, or personal relationships. But I also think that more often than not, something better for you can come out of the failure. From it, you can learn what it takes to actually be successful. I'm a big believer that when things don't work out, or when things you try do not succeed, that they are really just huge stepping stones. They are bricks that give your house a foundation. If you don't try these things, your house is made out of sticks, or out of old ideas that never solidify enough to be bricks. It's the failures that make the best bricks, or something really strong in the end. 
When you're a snowboarder, to do well at the sport, you really have to go with the flow. And if anyone knows how to go with the flow, it's Sierra. By doing that, he was able to ride his snowboarding career over to Breckenridge, which carried him over to me and led him to being professionally hired as a tattoo artist. This flowed into our creating a business partnership and then a friendship, and eventually brought him to California and to setting up his own tattoo business, which is still going strong to this day. He sort of let nature take its course in helping him find success. And in a way, that's what ended up happening to me. When I wasn't sure what career path to take next, I turned to a personal interest of mine, one that I had long practiced for fun, but not for money, suddenly realizing what had been right in front of me the whole time, the chance to change my life around. And change it did.